Well, good evening. Tonight I want to look at 2 Corinthians and, and uh, give you a, uh, some, something of an overview of this letter as we think about the Spirit of God and the local church, or as I've titled this particular session, the, the spiritual church. What does it mean for a church to live its life in dependence upon the Spirit of God? That's really the central question that's before us tonight. And one of the key texts that I want to spend a, a fair bit of time looking at is it found in 2 Corinthians 4, if you would turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 4, simply looking at verses 1 through 6. I'll read that, but then we'll look at the background for this letter and, and uh, the broad overview of what Paul is uh, saying as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read these words. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, as we come to your word tonight, and as we reflect on this letter that your servant Paul wrote to this church so many years ago, we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would work in us, giving your spirit that we might understand your word and that we might receive uh, your, um, what you have for us tonight so that we too might be a church that uh, seeks to order our life together uh, in light of what you have uh, called all the churches everywhere to do, in dependence upon you as we depend upon the Holy Spirit, individually and corporately as the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're in Christ, then the Spirit of God resides in us. This is true both individually and corporately. This was a central idea in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, you may remember how Paul made this point. You can turn back, in fact, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. He made this point to the Corinthians about the fact that the Spirit of God dwells in them. In this context, he was calling them, as individuals, to flee from immorality, to pursue a life of holiness. And he asked this question, rhetorically speaking, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand that they were people whom, uh, who had the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Now, they were to live in accordance with that truth as individuals. But he didn't only apply that to them individually. He also applied that to them corporately as the church. And so just a couple of chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, 
he asked a very similar question in 1 Corinthians 3:16 and 17, saying, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In this context, very differently, Paul was calling the Corinthians to deal with divisions that had arisen within the local church, where people were dividing over all sorts of things, and they were mistreating one another, and they were, um, they were seeking to order themselves uh, uh, under uh, various teachers that they preferred. And as factionalism began to reign in that church, Paul reminded them of this truth, that not only as individuals are they God's temple, but corporately as, God's, as, as, as the church, we are God's temple. And anyone who destroys that, in that case, by dividing the church, is destroying the temple of God and uh, should, uh, should um, worry himself over the severe judgment that would come. Now, Paul, in fact, uses a, a lot of imagery to describe what the local church is in these two letters. He describes the church as God's field and a building and in earlier in 1 Corinthians 3. And here the idea is simply that God is at work in the midst of his people. Just as someone would go into his field and till the ground or harvest the wheat, so too God is at work in his field and it's the church. Or he's at work building this building and Paul compared himself then to a master builder and a steward, a servant of the Lord who is at work laboring to build this building. We just saw how Paul also uh, compared the church to a very specific kind of building, namely a temple, a place where God himself dwells. And later in 1 Corinthians, he described the church as Christ's body. We are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And that helped the church in Corinth to understand that as the body of Christ, we all have different purposes. We are like different members in a body. Some are hands, some are feet, some are uh, eyes and mouths and so on and so forth. And so we work according to our various gifts that have been distributed by the Spirit. But we are one body, and so we work in service of the one body. We don't separate ourselves from the body, seeking to establish ourselves independently as though an eye could be sufficient in itself or a hand could be sufficient in itself. And finally, a final image that we actually see in 2 Corinthians 11 has to do with the church being likened to the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ that Paul speaks about his own jealousy to present the Corinthians as a pure and, and spotless bride prepared for, prepared for the bridegroom who is Christ there in 2 Corinthians 11 too. And all of these image, images point to the fact that to God, the church is precious to God, the church is his, and it's very important to him, and we ought to regard it in a similar way. God is at work among us and within us to make something of us and to bring us into a relationship with him through Christ as he gives the Spirit, pours out the Spirit in our midst. Our life together then should reflect these realities. They will reflect these realities when it is evident that we are depending upon God in our lives as we grow in Christ-likeness together. That's really the point of First and Second Corinthians. Paul is calling the Corinthians to understand what it means to depend upon the Spirit of God in a different light. You remember from First Corinthians how eager they were, how eager this body of Christians was to uh, 
to receive spiritual gifts and to demonstrate spiritual gifts in their life together. But Paul wanted them not to be just concerned with spiritual gifts, with, with uh, things like speaking in tongues or working miracles or prophesying, but also the fruit of the Spirit, that the, the, the things that God produces in our lives, those marks of holiness and those marks of, of godliness that, um, that, uh, uh, that the Christian should truly desire. That really is the uh, quintessential mark of a spirit-filled Christian and a spirit-filled church. Not so much whether or not there is prophecy or whether or not there is speaking in tongues. Those things were somewhat common in the first century. We don't see them now in our midst, in our uh, context, and yet the Spirit is still among us because the hallmarks of the Spirit's presence in the life of His people are seen in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. This is then, these marks uh, point back to the signature, signature reality of the Christian life, that gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to reflect on this a little bit as well, too, to help you to understand and help you to see how important this is in the Christian life. The signature reality of the Christian life is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's how we know that someone has been brought into the body of Christ. Look back with me to Acts chapter 11 for a moment. Acts chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I'll set some of the context here. You remember how Peter received a vision in Acts chapter 10. And he was sent to a man named Cornelius, to share the gospel with Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion. He was a God-fearing Gentile, but he was a Gentile. He had not gone through the process of becoming a proselyte. He had not gone through the process of becoming a Jew. He feared God, but he did not worship God as a Jew. He had not become a proselyte. And yet it was God's will that Cornelius and his household should hear the gospel and should receive the gospel and should be among the first of the Gentiles to embrace Christ by faith. And so Peter went to Cornelius and he shared the gospel and the Holy Spirit fell upon, uh, upon Cornelius and the members of his household in a very manifest way. What we come to then in Acts chapter 11 is Peter sharing a report about these events to the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. 
He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave us, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They would reason in a similar way in Acts chapter 15 when the same kind of concern arose as people began to question whether or not the Gentiles needed to receive circumcision in order to be incorporated into the people of God. And the answer that was given, just like the answer here, was based on the fact that God had already given the Spirit to these people. And because God had given the Spirit, He had demonstrated by a clear and unmistakable revelation that He had incorporated them into His people. And just as Peter said in, first, in, in Acts chapter 11, so Peter led the council and, and James too to say the same thing in Acts 15, that they should not put any further restriction upon the Gentiles because God had given them the Spirit and had demonstrated manifestly and clearly that they were part of the people of God. This is the signature reality of the Christian life. That's what I mean when I say this. What designates in the, this clear and unmistakable way that someone is in Christ is the fact that God has so worked in that person through the Holy Spirit that he has caused him to be born again. He's produced new life in that person. Now, we will see evidence of that. We'll see evidence of that and the fact that the person believes the gospel and the fact that the person repents of his sin and the fact that the person demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit, begins to grow in Christ-likeness. But that signature truth, the signature reality of the Christian life is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we step back and we ask ourselves, what would we expect this to look like, look like in the life of a believer? In Acts, of course, when the Spirit was given at particular instances and in particular times, it was very clear because people spoke in tongues. And that was a way of showing that the gospel was going forth to new groups. But the Spirit does not always cause people to speak in tongues when they receive the Spirit. In fact, most of the time, He does not. We don't see that kind of thing. Well, maybe we might look for something else. If we were in Corinth, we might think someone who has the Spirit ought to live a life that is marked by great power, by great and mighty deeds. Well, Paul is going to show the Corinthians that that's actually quite the opposite, something that we could call the paradox of the Spirit-filled life. You see, we might expect that a person that's full of the Holy Spirit goes around working wonders and, and, and miraculously healing people. But Paul shows in 2 Corinthians that the Spirit's work in the life of the believer is seen not in power, but in weakness. And that's true both individually and corporately. And his presence in the life of the believer is also demonstrated in growth in Christ-likeness, in the pursuit of holiness. And again, that's true both individually and in the life of the congregation. It's not seen so much in personal power on our part, but it's seen in weakness. As in our weakness, we demonstrate dependence upon God who is powerful to work in 
and through us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's what Paul's life showed. And he wanted the Corinthians to understand that. You see, there's some background that I think is important for you to, to understand about 2 Corinthians. What's going on in this church that will help us to get a sense of why, why Paul has to make this point and why he has to write these two letters in order to impress these points upon them. You remember from 1 Corinthians how there, was, there were divisions and there were factions as people gathered themselves under particular teachers and under particular preachers. And so too, many of those divisions continued on. Now we, we know, uh, we can infer from reading First and Second Corinthians and piecing some things together that there's actually more than these two letters uh, that Paul wrote. That Paul wrote a, a few different letters and actually visited that, uh, that church on different occasions. And he makes reference to those letters and, and, and in, the two, in First and Second Corinthians. And he makes reference to those visits in, um, in both letters. We don't need to go through all the details of those things. But let me describe a bit of what had happened. You remember from 1 Corinthians how Paul confronted the church because there was a man who was uh, engaged in, in, a, in, in very wicked uh, activity. He had taken his, his own um, stepmother, his father's wife, as his own uh, wife or mistress. And uh, Paul said that even Gentiles, even pagans, don't do this kind of thing, and he is to be put out of the church. Well, Along the way, it seems from 2 Corinthians that Paul came back to Corinth and he actually confronted some member of the church. It may be that he was personally confronting that man, or it may be that there was another man who, um, who was also uh, deserving of a confrontation. We cannot really know for certain, but it does seem like he was confronting some person individually and that person did not receive that confrontation with repentance, but rather rejected Paul and seemed to question his authority. And so Paul then left without the matter having been settled. And then he wrote them another letter that he makes reference to in 2 Corinthians, a painful letter, one that he describes that he, he wrote with, with anguish and with many tears. And the congregation, which at first had sided perhaps with this particular individual, came around to seeing things from Paul's way in a better way. And they then called that man to repentance, and finally, he did repent. You see some of that division that's taking place as there's this challenge that's taking place in the church because someone refused to repent for a while, and then finally he did turn and he did repent. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 will tell the church to now restore the man, to forgive the sinner, to show grace to this individual. Let me read that text in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some, some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So you see that Paul makes reference to this particular situation, and as I suggested, it may be one and the same situation that we read about in 1 Corinthians 5. How there was that man who needed to be put out of the church, 
and maybe an altogether different situation. But the situations have this in common. There was a person who needed to be called to repentance. That person resisted for a time. That person needed to be disciplined. But ultimately, after the person repented, then restoration became necessary and forgiveness became necessary. And so that issue, that whole issue, lies in the background of the church because it wasn't just a matter of one individual being called to repentance. But as Paul will lay out in 2 Corinthians, it really required the whole church to repent and to turn and to change the way in which they dealt with this particular individual. But there's another issue that stands in the background as well, and it relates to some things that we have seen in 1 Corinthians, namely that tendency towards partisanship and factionalism. And it's, come really, it's really come to a head, where Paul will actually refer to some individuals, not by name, but he'll call them false apostles in 2 Corinthians He'll make that, that statement in 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15. And I'll, let me read that too, just so you hear the language of what Paul says about these individuals. These people, he says, what I'm doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. In other words, these individuals are claiming to have the same authority as Paul and the other apostles goes on to say, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now what can we say about these false apostles? At the very least, we can say that their life and their ministry is not marked by dependence upon the Spirit. Rather, Paul refers to them in chapter 2, verse 17, as peddlers of God's Word. They're like salesmen who are just trying to make a buck by preaching and teaching the Word in any way they can. Whether they're teaching it faithfully or not, not so, doesn't matter so much so long as they can make a profit. He says in chapter 3, verses one and following, are we beginning to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are letters of recommend, are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And again, we can uh, surmise that these individuals that he refers to that require letters of recommendation are depending upon someone having written a letter commending them or, or, or even putting forward a resume. We'll see that idea later in 2 Corinthians. Putting forward a resume of all of their qualifications to commend themselves to the church in, in, so as to essentially say, we're the people you should trust. Don't trust this Paul guy. Look at our resumes. Look at our letters of recommendation. We're the people that, we, that you should trust. And all along the way, they're leading the church astray. They're leading them through deceptive and underhanded tactics. This is a background issue that lies in the background with the, with the, that, that is uh, going on in the Corinthian church that Paul is dealing with. These people have rejected Paul's apostolic ministry, particularly because he seems to them to be per, uh, personally weak. And here it comes back to this idea of dependence upon the Spirit. In chapter 10... Verse 10, Paul will say this, For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. 
In other words, they're saying, well, Paul writes a great letter. That letter might be biting. That letter might confront you. It might challenge you. But he's a weak guy. When you see him face to face, he, he doesn't have much to say, and you don't have to fear him. You know what they're doing? They're judging things according to the flesh. And throughout 2 Corinthians, what you see is a strong uh, contrast between that which is of the flesh and that which is of the spirit. They're judging things by the flesh, and they seem to be influencing the Corinthian church to judge things in the same way, to look at the outward appearance and look at the resume that a person might have and look at the, the letters they might have to commend themselves to others. And Paul would argue to the Corinthians, that's not what the spirit-filled life looks like. It's not what the spirit-filled ministry looks like. But the spirit-filled ministry, rather, looks like weakness and dependence upon God so that the power of God is evident, not the power of Paul or the power of any individual human being. And so that brings us then to chapter 4, but I do want to give you the uh, somewhat immediate context in chapter 3. And I'll just read through chapter 3 so you can get a sense of what Paul, the way Paul understands his ministry. He says this as I take up from verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved on letters and stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see then in that lead up to chapter 4, this emphasis upon the Spirit's role in our life and the ministry of the Spirit that has been entrusted to Paul and the other apostles. They've been entrusted with this absolutely glorious ministry, one that far surpasses the ministry that was entrusted to Moses. Moses' ministry was so glorious that he would veil his face, you remember, from Exodus. And the people couldn't look at him after he would be in the tent of meeting talking with God because of the glory that, uh, that came with that, uh, that revelation. But here, 
in the ministry that God has given, had given to the apostles, they were able to, uh, to, to speak a much more glorious truth, proclaim much more glorious things with an unveiled face, as it were, that is just boldly declaring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is a veil, but it's not over the apostles' face, but over the hearts of unbelievers, Paul would say. And so what's the, what do we do? How do we resolve that situation? How do we proclaim... How do the apostles proclaim that gospel in such a way where it speaks to men, men's hearts, where, where it calls people to faith in Christ, where it causes people to understand and receive that glorious gospel? And the answer is independence upon the Spirit. For the Spirit of God is the Lord, and He is the one who causes us to receive with faith the declaration of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. And so all of that's important context because what it shows us then as we come to chapter 4, as Paul describes the kind of ministry that is proper in the church, the kind of ministry that he himself has committed to, he describes it as a ministry that depends upon the Spirit to work through his word, not a ministry that depends upon the flesh to work in other ways, to deceive or to persuade or to convince Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. He recognizes that the ministry he has is not something he's earned. It's not something he's deserved. It's not something he's powerful in himself to carry out. But rather, it is a ministry that has been graciously granted to him by God, not because he deserves it, but because God graciously decided in his sovereign will to use Paul as an instrument for his glory. It's a trust, a merciful and gracious trust from the Lord. So he's courageous on that account. We don't lose heart. We're not timid in proclaiming this glorious gospel. But there's something he doesn't do. He doesn't engage in disgraceful, underhanded ways, he says. We've renounced them. We won't engage in that kind of tactic. And it seems that that's the kind of thing that the false apostles are doing. That they're using whatever, uh, whatever uh, human means and subtlety and deceits that they can in order to gain an audience and to gain influence in this church. Paul doesn't say, well, we'll fight fire with fire. Like we, we, many of our, our politicians would say, is you have, to fight, uh, you have to fight fire with fire in the political realm. And if they throw mud at you, you've got to throw mud back. Paul doesn't do that kind of thing in his ministry. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We refuse to make it our, our, our common practice, the, 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 the common way of doing ministry, that we're trying to deceive people or to use subtlety or, or um, confuse them at first so that later on we can slip in and reveal what our real aim is. No, Paul has nothing to do with that. And there's no sense in which he'll ever tamper with God's word. He'll not manipulate it. He'll not shade it. He'll not uh, uh, hide portions of it. He, he, he boldly and clearly proclaims the word of God so that people might hear the word and might receive the word, not because Paul's a great orator and not because he's a persuasive debater, but because the Spirit of God is pleased to work through that honest and open proclamation. And that's what Paul says then when he says, but by the open statement of the truth. 
we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, and just being very clear and open and plain in the way of, of stating the gospel and, 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 and preaching the word of God. Paul's conscience is clear and he trusts that he can commend himself before others and he'll pass that test that there's nothing that he brings that would be offensive to anyone's conscience. And he can even stand before God with a clear conscience in the sight of God because all he does is proclaim the word of God openly and plainly and clearly without deceit. Now one might come along and they'd say to Paul, but people aren't receiving that gospel. Wouldn't you be far more productive? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't more people believe if you used some uh, rhetoric and some persuasive tactics in order to convince people? I mean, after all, you, you said that the, that the gospel's veiled to so many and they're not receiving it. Shouldn't you maybe change your strategies and, and, and approach this a different way? But Paul recognizes that their faith, or lack thereof, depends upon God. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's not because we do or don't engage in those tactics. We're not going to engage in those tactics. But the reason why they're not seeing it and receiving the gospel is because Satan has blinded their minds. They cannot receive it. They cannot see it. Their minds, their eyes, they're blinded to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But Paul goes on. He's not discouraged by this. Verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here Paul speaks about the fact that his preaching is not centered on himself. and It's a small thing if people should regard him well or not. He's not out there preaching the Apostle Paul. He's out there preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And people receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in him as the God who said, let light shine out of in, into darkness, speaks into their lives and causes the light of the gospel to shine in their lives as well. You see how Paul is showing that though the, 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 the eyes of unbelievers are veiled to the gospel, and so that they can't see the light of the gospel, God's more powerful than that. He uses that phrase to remind us of creation. He's the God who said, let there be light, and boom, there was light. Elsewhere in this letter, he'll, set, he'll speak of, uh, he'll, he'll make reference to God and he'll add lines like, God who raises the dead, so that we are reminded of the power that he has. Gospel ministry depends upon the power of God, not the skill of the preacher, not the uh, rhetorical ability of the pastor. It depends upon the power of God and the power of God alone. And Paul has made it his, his complete Resolve. He's completely resolved in his life and in his ministry to do nothing that would undermine his dependence upon God to work. For God is able to do that which he has promised to do through the plain preaching of his word. What does this have to do with the church? What does this have to do with our life together? Namely, that it suggests that our commitment should be the same. What Paul is, is calling the Corinthians to do is 
to, uh, to stop following after these false apostles and to embrace this kind of ministry that is rooted in the clear, consistent, complete proclamation of God's word. And that is a sign of dependence upon the Spirit. It's why, for instance, we seek to preach and teach in an expository way. It's why some of the men are, are, are going through a training course right now, learning to preach and teach in an expository manner. It's why that we make it our aim to go systematically through books of the Bible, working typically verse by verse, but sometimes as we're doing tonight and over these past few weeks, taking a, a single book and giving an overview of that book and, and uh, applying it to a particular theme. But all the time, what we're seeking to do is not proclaim the interesting things that might be on my mind or someone else's mind, but proclaim God's word and God's word alone. Why? Because that is what has power to save. That's what has power to build up God's church. Not because the word somehow is magical in and of itself, but because the spirit of God is pleased to work through his word and the clear proclamation of his word. And we ought to be a people who depend upon the Spirit, who depend upon God to work. And so maybe we lack some of those things that uh, others might embrace. That you, you, you can go around and you can find churches that embrace all sorts of methods and tactics that are designed to get people into the chairs and to, um, to uh, interest the senses and to, um, to entertain people and to make them feel very, very comfortable in the, par- in the particular setting. And you can grow a congregation in that way, I suppose, and uh, gain a, a large ministry. But one has to then step back and reflect and ask, is that the kind of ministry that shows dependence upon the Spirit of God? Or is that rather the kind of ministry that depends upon modern tactics, mod- modern strategies that, uh, that are according to the flesh? It's not what Paul did. Paul made it his aim to rely upon the Spirit in his life. And he was, uh, you know, you recall those words where they say his, his letters are weighty, but when he's with you, his, his, he's weak. He's not, not that impressive. His words are of no account. In that context, Paul will go on to say what we write in our letters, we don't, not to say we, do, we say them when we're with you, we do them when we're with you. It's, it's a very biting thing, and he has some very serious warnings for those people who speak like that. It's when I come, if you, uh, if, you, if you don't repent, I will show you the authority of an apostle. But you, you don't want to see that. But nevertheless, um, uh, what we see in Paul's life overall is not typically signs of power, but rather signs of weakness. Paul gets into this later in 2 Corinthians, this uh, comparison of resumes. You, you can find that in 2 Corinthians 11 this mock comparison of resumes as he considers the false apostles. And it seems that these, uh, these men probably are uh, from that group that um, the Judaizers or, or um, some, from, uh, some Jewish men who had become Christians and yet were seeking to turn the church in a different direction, one that was closer to the law. And he gets into this mock, um, mock boasting where he compares his resume with theirs, not because... Um, he wants to prove that he's more qualified than them, but he wants to comp- uh, prove the utter foolishness of it all. So there in Second Corinthians 11, he says in verse 21, right in the middle of verse 21, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, 
I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And here we get into, let's look at Paul's resume bullet points. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. He goes on to describe some of the events that, uh, that, that describe that weakness and goes on and on through the rest of the book to talk about that weakness. But Paul was committed you see in that whole mock boast as he puts forward his resume, and you could imagine someone submitting a resume, perhaps to be a pastor, and then you read the resume bullets, shipwrecked three times, and you say, well, what does that have to do with being a pastor? But Paul is showing his weakness because he wants them to understand that what qualifies him as a minister is not the question of personal strength and a personal resume, not what Paul has within himself, not the question of is Paul sufficient in himself, but is God working? Has God called him? Is God working through him? And that is evident, not in his strength, but in his weakness, as God demonstrates his power. Well, the, coming back then to the idea of a word-based church, gospel-centered ministry, that's why as a church we ought to, that we embrace that, and we ought to maintain that commitment for all of our time together. Our commitment to a, a ministry that is based on the open and plain declaration of the word. I think that the best way to do that is an expository ministry where we work regularly and systematically through passages of scripture, explaining their meaning, applying them to the church. Not because it's the most interesting thing to listen to and not because it has the most rhetorical flash, not because anyone really, I think, likes to sit down and, and, and listen to someone talk for 45 minutes or so but rather because the Spirit of God is pleased to work through this weakness, the weakness of someone simply standing before others and teaching and preaching the Word of God. And the Spirit then shows His power, shows that He is Lord as He works through that kind of ministry. And so a church that is showing the presence of the Spirit in their lives will be a church that is committed to the, the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, and not through gimmicks and not through uh, deceits and through other uh, tactics, but one that is simply and completely committed to that kind of ministry, and that kind of ministry alone. Well, for the sake of time, I won't belabor a point that I think we, we looked at a great deal in 1 Corinthians, but I will simply mention it. One further mark of a spirit-filled church is the corporate pursuit of holiness corporate pursuit of holiness. And that comes through that commitment to the word 
as we are through the, the word, receiving the word and growing in the word, we are being conformed by one degree of glory to another in the image of Christ. Paul will make that statement later in 2 Corinthians 4. But it also comes as we practice what we've spoken about from 1 Corinthians, that is church discipline uh, in the church, where we pursue holiness by calling others to repentance and when necessary, taking actions that are necessary to remove unrepentant brothers and sisters uh, or those who bear the name of brothers and sisters from our midst. But I want to add one thing, then we talked about that in 1 Corinthians, but add one thing that 2 Corinthians makes quite plain. This whole process is always aimed at restoration. It's always aimed at restoration. You see that in 2 Corinthians 2 in the text I read earlier. As Paul calls upon the Corinthians now to forgive the brother who had offended so many in the church and yet had repented. To come alongside that man so that he wouldn't be overcome by excessive sorrow. That's the goal of church discipline. It's not to uh, mistreat people. It's not to shame them, but rather to see that they are restored through repentance and, um, and uh, a, a return to uh, faithfulness and to fellowship. And that applies not just individually, but corporately. For Paul applies it corporately to the Corinthians as well. As he speaks about his joy in them because Titus had come to them, come to him, and given a report about how they responded to his letter, the one that we don't have here, in the, in the New Testament, that painful letter that he makes reference to. They responded with repentance. And Paul can say this in 2 Corinthians 7, for even when we came, and it's verse 5 and following, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And he'll go on from there, but you see there that Paul's whole aim in both of these letters, as he calls the Corinthians to show truly in their lives the marks of the Spirit working in them, not through those great signs, but through the fruit of the Spirit. He's seeking to restore them to fellowship with one another and to, uh, to be reunited with them in fellowship as they all together seek a life that is marked by the Spirit's work in them, as they depend upon the Spirit to work through His Word, and they pursue holiness through the power of the Spirit together and corporately. That's what we as a church are also called to do. That's what we can learn from this church in Corinth from 2,000 years ago. As we seek the same thing in our lives, a life that is marked by dependence upon God to work through His Spirit, through His Word, as we seek holiness, not in our own strength, and not according to the law, but according to the power of the Spirit who works in us. The one who spoke light into the darkness, the one who raises the dead, the one who also is able to work in us 
to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let us be that kind of church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray now that you would help us to receive uh, these words from your word and that you would uh, work through indeed the weakness of this medium of preaching and teaching in our hearts and in our minds. Show your power, Lord, the power of the word to work in our lives as you work through it. May we indeed continue to grow in our commitment to know you and to know your word and to understand it and to apply it in our lives. And may we continue to grow in our commitment to pursue holiness together, not in a way that's self-serving or cruel or judgmental, but in a way that's gracious and always aims at restoration. We pray that you would so work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.